What is the Bible's end time message for America and for the church? I recently summed it up in a booklet called A Prophetic Manifesto. It is not a comforting message, but it is one that is very much needed. Stay tuned as I share it with you. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end-time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. In the spring of 2012, I believe the Lord began to move on my heart with a very troubling message. I turned it over and over in my mind. I wrestled with it in prayer. And finally, it burned so hot in my soul that I had to put it on paper. When I finished it, and I was published in June of 2012, it looked like this. I called it a prophetic manifesto, and I gave it this stark cover because it contained a very stark message. Since that time, it has gone through printing after printing, and literally tens of thousands of copies have been distributed to pastors all over the nation. In this program and the one next week, I want to share with you the message of the manifesto, and I'd like to begin by reading the introduction. This booklet is titled, A Prophetic Manifesto, Not a Prophecy Manifesto. The difference is important. My purpose is not to present a prophecy given to me by God. I I have no such prophecy. My purpose is to share some sobering truths that are based on prophecies which God gave to biblical prophets thousands of years ago. They are also based on principles the Bible reveals about how God deals with nations. You are probably not going to like what this manifesto has to say. Throughout history, people have always demanded prophetic voices who would assure them that all is well between them and God. They have desired what the Bible calls uh, pillar prophets. And there have always been spiritual leaders who have been more than willing to tickle people's ears by telling them what they want to hear. I don't like having to say what I'm going to express in this manifesto. But I believe it must be said, it is the duty of a watchman on the wall to shout an alarm when when it's appropriate. And the time is certainly appropriate here in America for a shout of warning. The first part of the manifesto is titled, The Death of America. Here's what I wrote. America is finished. We as a nation have turned our back on God. We have kicked Him out of our schools and out of the public arena. We have declared Him to be off limits. We have given the boot to the very one who made us great and showered us with blessings. We are in the process of becoming a thoroughly secular and pagan nation. And in the process, we are courting the wrath of God. Think about it. Since 1973, we have murdered our babies in their mother's wombs at the rate of 4,000 a day, totaling nearly 60 million, and their blood cries out for vengeance. We consume more than one half of all the illegal drugs produced in the world, yet we constitute only 5% of the world's population. We spend $2.8 billion per year on internet pornography, which is more than half the world total of $4.9 billion. Our rate of cohabiting partners has increased tenfold since 1960, per totaling over 12 million unmarried partners today. Our divorce rate is the highest of any nation in the world. 40% of our children are born to unmarried women. 
We spend over $100 billion per year on gambling. Our number one drug problem is alcohol, producing over 17.6 million adults who are alcoholics or who have alcohol problems. Our nation has become a debt junkie, leading the world in both government debt and personal debt. Blasphemy of God's name, His Word, and His Son has become commonplace in our media. We are the moral polluter of planet Earth through the distribution of our immoral, violent, and blasphemous television programs and movies. We have forsaken the nation of Israel, demanding that they surrender their heartland and divide their capital city. We have become a nation that calls good evil and evil good, and we are paying the price. Our schools have become arenas of deadly violence. Our prison population is increasing exponentially from 500,000 in 1980 to over 2.5 million a day. Over 7.2 million of our people are under some form of correctional supervision. Over 1.5 million of our women are reported victims of domestic violence each year, and it's estimated that the majority of cases are never reported. We are currently averaging over 3 million child abuse cases each year involving 6 million children. We experience more than 12 million crimes every year, more than any other nation in the world. Teen violence has increased exponentially with youngsters killing each other over tennis shoes. Gangs are terrorizing our cities. Even the nicest of our neighborhoods are no longer safe, requiring us to protect our homes with security systems and weapons. Our money is becoming increasingly worthless. Our economy is being choked to death by a pile of debt that is beyond comprehension. Our major corporations and labor unions are in bondage to greed. Our society has become deeply divided, splintered among competing groups defined by racial, religious, and economic factors. Our families are being destroyed by an epidemic of divorce. Our entertainment industry consists of vulgarians amusing barbarians. One of our fastest growing businesses is the pagan practice of tattooing and body piercing. Our universities and media outlets are controlled by radical leftists who hold God in contempt. Our federal government has become top-heavy with bureaucrats who are insensitive to taxpayers. Our politicians have become more concerned with power than service. All levels of government have become increasingly oppressive, seeking to regulate every aspect of our lives. Taxation has become confiscatory in nature. Our legal system has been hijacked by activists who desire to impose their will on the people regardless of what the people desire. Our freedom of speech is being threatened by hate crime legislation. Our forms of sports are becoming increasingly violent, reminiscent of the gladiators of ancient Rome. Our society has become starstruck, more interested in celebrities than people of integrity, Our churches are caught up in an epidemic of apostasy as they set aside the Word of God in an effort to cozy up to the world and gain its approval. We are experiencing one major natural disaster after another in unprecedented volume and ferocity. We have become afflicted with a plague of sexual perversion producing an army of hardcore militant homosexuals. In summary, We are a people who have become desensitized to sin, and in the process, we have forgotten how to blush. Another characteristic of our society is that true Bible-believing Christians are being alienated from society and are being increasingly subjected to persecution. The speed at which this has happened in recent years is absolutely breathtaking. 
Jim Garlow is a Nazarene minister who pastors the Skyline Church in La Mesa, California. He is considered to be an expert on church history. In a recent presentation to the National Religious Broadcasters, Pastor Garlow presented a sweeping overview of the relationship between Bible-believing Christians and American society. He pointed out, from 1607 to 1833, Bible-believing Christians were the establishment of this nation. That's for 236 years, folks. From 1833 to 1918, we were the predominant force. That's only 85 years. Notice how these periods decrease rapidly. From 1918 to 1968, the subdominant force was Bible-believing Christians for about 50 years. And then the big turning point came in the 60s. From 1968 68 to 1988, we were a subculture, a subculture for 20 years. From 1988 to 1998, a counterculture for 10 years. And from 1998 to 2008, an antithetical culture for 10 years. And finally, from 2008 to the present, a persecuted culture. An overwhelming majority of Americans, 85%, claim to be Christians. But the evidence of Christianity in the lives of most of them is almost nil. They purchase lottery tickets, frequent R-rated movies, watch trash shows on TV, purchase pornography, idolize crude and vulgar musicians, frequent abortion clinics, and compile a divorce rate that equals non-Christians. They are what we might be called cultural Christians. Born into a Christian family, raised going to church, but without any personal relationship with Jesus. Another characteristic of cultural Christians is that they rarely, if ever, read the Bible. This has resulted in gross biblical ignorance and the undoing of doctrine. Ignorance of God's Word has become true of even evangelical Christians. The very people whose identity in the past was linked to the reliance on the Bible for their ultimate authority in all things. Surveys by the Barner Group reveal that among those claiming to be evangelicals today, 19% are living with a partner outside of marriage. 37% do not believe the Bible to be totally accurate. 45% do not believe that Jesus was sinless. This is evangelicals, folks. 52% do not believe Satan is real. And 57% do not believe that Jesus is the only way to eternal life despite the fact that He said so. And 57% believe that good works play a part in gaining eternal life. As you can see from these survey results, the term evangelical has lost its meaning. It is no wonder we have professing Christians voting for candidates who promote homosexuality, same-sex marriage, abortion, and casino gambling. Or professing Christians who vote out of greed for the candidate who offers to give them the most regardless of the candidate's wretched lifestyle or beliefs about social and moral issues. Or professing Christians who vote on the basis of race or ethnicity regardless of a candidate's viewpoints concerning vital moral issues. Public opinion polls concerning the fundamental beliefs of Christianity consistently reveal that the number of true Bible-believing Christians in America today is less than 10%. It's no wonder that during the past 50 years our society has secularized and paganized so rapidly. We are a nation shaking its fist at God. We're literally crying out for God's judgment. God has been very patient with us, as He always is. But consider the words of the prophet Nahum. He wrote, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries, and He reserves wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger 
and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Yes, God has been patient, but His patience is wearing thin. He has sent prophetic voices to call us to repentance. And when we turn to deaf ear, He has begun sending remedial judgments. But our faces have become harder than stone. And the result is that we are now wallowing in immorality, violence, and greed. The first chapter of Romans reveals how God deals with a rebellious people. He will step back. He will lower the hedge of protection and allow evil to flourish. The first result of that action, it says in Romans 1, will be the outbreak of a sexual revolution which occurred in this nation in the 1960s. If the nation refuses to repent, God will take a second step back, lower the hedge of protection again, and a plague of homosexuality will be unleashed. And that happened in our nation in the 1980s, and it accelerated in the 1990s. If the nation continues in its sin with no sign of repentance, God will step back a third time, lower the hedge again, and the society will be delivered over to a depraved mind that will result in its destruction. The time has come for God to deliver us over to a depraved mind, to deliver us from judgment to destruction. We have reached the point of no return, which is identified by the biblical prophets as the point where, quote, the wound cannot be healed. Only one other nation in history has been as blessed as ours, and that was the ancient nation of Judah. Like us, they rebelled against the God who had blessed them so richly, and as with us, God sent prophets to call them to repentance. When they refused, He hammered them with remedial judgments. When they persisted in their rebellion, God delivered them from judgment to destruction, allowing the Babylonians to conquer them and take them away from their homeland into captivity. The fate of Judah prompted two of the saddest verses in the Bible. They read as follows, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, scoffed at His prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people, until there was no remedy. We may experience a temporary revival as ancient Judah did when the righteous King Josiah succeeded the monster King Manasseh. But when Josiah was killed, the nation plunged right back into spiritual darkness and soon ceased to exist. Evil had just simply become too ingrained in the fabric of the nation. Like ancient Judah, our fate is sealed. Our collapse will be just as sudden and overwhelming. Why should God treat us any differently? We can be assured that He will not. Welcome back to Christ in Prophecy and uh, my presentation of my message in this booklet called A Prophetic Manifesto. As I said at the beginning, my message is divided into two parts. The first part, which I've just presented, deals with the condition and fate of our nation. The second part focuses on the condition of the church, and I'll be sharing that part with you next week. For now, I'd like for us to pause for a discussion of what I've just presented. I've invited two Bible prophecy colleagues to be with me in this part of our discussion, and the first is my colleague Nathan Jones, who serves as our web minister. The other is Dennis Pollock. 
He was on our staff for 11 years before he decided to establish a ministry of his own called Spirit of Grace, which focuses on outreaches to Africa and India. Well, welcome, fellas. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Always glad to have you back with us, Dennis. (laughs) And uh, I just think I'm going to start off with you since you're our guest and I put you on the hot seat first, okay? (laughs) Uh, As we get into a discussion of what I've just presented, uh, I'd like to start off with a statement that Franklin Graham made when we were having the big discussion in this nation about what was called the fiscal cliff. And he said, you know, folks, I'm more concerned about the moral cliff we've already fallen off of than this fiscal cliff. Let's just start there. What do you think? Yeah, well, absolutely, I agree with that. Uh, The politicians are are worried about a lot of economic issues, and they're worried that we make sure and treat the homosexuals properly and so forth. And uh, they don't even consider the problem of offending a holy God who created us, who has graced us and blessed us so much. But, you know, in, in, in getting to the issue of, of a moral cliff, you're making a, an assumption, one that I agree with, but a lot of Americans wouldn't agree, and that is that there is such a thing as absolute morality. Because there's a lot of Americans that, that the only morality they would hold to is that we should tolerate pretty much anything and everything on a personal lifestyle level other than those who don't tolerate any and everything. <laughs> if they don't, then you can come down hard. But as long as you tolerate everything, then everything is fine. Of course, uh, you and I and Nathan and, and millions of Christians uh, disagree with that strongly. We hold to the Bible as our, our authoritative guide for morality. You know something, when I was a kid uh, back in the 60s, early 60s, uh, my dad would sit in our easy chair in our living room and read the Bible. He was a tremendous Bible reader. And uh, I can remember to this day him just every night practically reading the Bible. Well, he grew old, passed away, went to be with the Lord. And now what he does is what I do. I read the Bible a lot. And here's what's interesting, Dave. When I sit down to read the Bible, and let's say I'm reading the Ten Commandments, uh, have no other God before me, and, and don't make any graven image, and remember the Sabbath and so forth. I'm reading the exact same words that my dad read 50 years ago. When I read the Sermon on the Mount, exact same thing, other than maybe he might have read with some these and thous from the King James, and I read a different version. But it's the exact same thing. When I read the epistles of Paul, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Exact same thing. And if you went back, let's say, 500 years to Luther's day, perhaps, let's say there was a Pollock back then who read the Bible, still reading the same scriptures. So what that means is, our morality, the morality of those who hold to the, the integrity and inspiration of the Scriptures, it never changes. You know, God wasn't big on adultery in the Old Testament. He's not big on adultery in the New Testament. Wasn't big on it in Luther's day. Isn't big on it today. It doesn't change. But the world's morality changes drastically. I mean, there was a time not all that long ago when if you were a celebrity and mentioned that you were a homosexual, it killed your career. That was the end of it. No longer is that the case. And so many things like there was a time when a divorce was a disgrace. And if you had one, you were ashamed of it. You wouldn't say much about it. Nowadays, they have divorce parties. We have changed so drastically. We have slidden backwards in a moral fashion. But those of us that hold to the scriptures, uh, we just stay with the same thing that Paul wrote and the same thing that uh, Isaiah and all these guys wrote. And so our morality doesn't change. And that's the problem. Uh, we're, we're saying, yeah, we've fallen off a moral cliff. The world pretty much is saying there's no such thing as morality or a moral cliff. Well, it reminds me of a statement uh, a pastor made to me recently when he said, David, 
Have you ever thought about the fact that what you and I believe today, which is mainline Christianity 30 years ago, is today considered to be off in a fringe, it's a fringe yeah. element, almost cultic in nature, that you would hold the, those beliefs that mainline Christianity held 30 years yeah. ago. The press loves to use the word controversial. Oh. If some, some Christian pastor makes a statement about uh, a cult is, is, is evil or homosexuality is wrong, they'll, they'll say, you know, this controversial statement that was made, well, it wasn't controversial <laughs> at all for thousands of years, but suddenly it has been become so. Well, how about it, Nathan? Have we fallen off a moral cliff? Well, not having as many years as, as Dennis is. <laughs> oh, thanks about. a lot, Nathan. No, no, no. No, <laughs> no, I'm glad he said that because otherwise they would have assumed we were the same age. <laughs> yes, we're twins. <laughs> but uh, growing up in the 80s, as I did, um, I, you got to say if you're going to fall off a moral cliff, then we have to say at some point, at some point in time, we fell off. And uh, growing up from the 80s and forward, I didn't see too much of a change morally. I mean, I was used to everybody swearing, everybody getting divorced, homosexuality on the rise. So to me, I have no frame of reference to say, wow, there was a time when it was more moral than it is now. I remember in my old years of 13 or 14 years old having a discussion with my mother, a very godly woman, Joyce Jones, good Bible prophecy expert. And she says, yes, we have definitely slid down morally. She says, when I was a child, back in the 50s, we could get on a bus as little kids, go anywhere. We'd have to worry about molesters and, and things like that. And she says, I have seen it drastically go down. And I was like, no, 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 it's, it's the same. So we went to our pastor and we asked our pastor, what do you think? And you know, he was uh, probably in his 70s or so. He says, I see morality like this. It says it goes up and down in waves. We have times where we hit real bad morality, say 1920s, and then we get really good. Uh, there's a revival of some sort. And we've seen two great awakens in the United States, so it goes like this. The problem is, as time goes on, it's, not, it's going like this. And to the point today, he would argue that we are way up here in the immorality. And so... I, that was really eye-opening. I've always carried that conversation with me. And now that I'm older and almost 40, I can look back and say, things have started to change. They're a little more worse than when I was a kid. And he's absolutely right. So morally as our country, we are worse than we've ever been. But there have been times throughout American history where we have gotten bad morally. I'm hoping and I'm praying that we will then have that revival that comes afterwards or the rapture. Yeah. Well, you know, when you start talking about uh, God judging America, I have found that people usually respond very defensively, even Christians, very defensively with immediately talking about patriotism. Uh-huh. What about it? Yeah. I Not th- repentance, but patriotism. Right. <laughs> a lot of Christians have aligned themselves with, with just a certain political idea. It's, it's conservative, which to me is better than the alternative. But it's still wrapped up in the American flag and that we're the great shining city on the hill and, you know, the the future is bright if we can just get people thinking a little bit more conservatively. The answer to our nation's problems is going to have to be a whole lot bigger than just getting another conservative politician in office. It is going to have to be Jesus Christ and it's going to have to involve repentance. And I've studied revival a lot, Nathan, so I know that revival can bring about a change. The, The sad thing is... We're seeing no evidence of it. That's right. And, and, and let, me, let me say this about the difference between what you described growing up in the 80s and you're saying you don't see too much difference. There, there are some significant differences. And one example I can think of is on one of our talk shows, in uh, morning talk shows, uh, they had a meteorologist who was a homosexual. And recently they announced he was engaged and they didn't, at the first time I saw this, they didn't show who he was engaged to. I had heard he was a homosexual. So I thought, well, okay, I wonder how far they're going to go with this. 
They didn't show his, the person he was engaged to didn't mention anything about his sexual orientation. So I thought, okay, well, they're, they're fearful of, of letting it out that he's homosexual. But later they had a show where they actually showed the man that he was engaged to. And uh, they showed him several times and they all gushed about how wonderful it was, how this was making their day, how happy they were for him and how they were a great couple. I mean, this is a man engaged to another man. And uh, it, to me, the, 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 the thing that was so disturbing was not just that there was a homosexual in, in show business or a celebrity. Of course, there have always been. But that they were making this a prominent thing. They were not afraid to show the American people no. that this was the case. Well, you know, uh, Nathan, I have a much longer perspective than you because I was born in 1938. And I can tell you that the America that exists today is as different as night and day from when I was growing up. And the dividing line was the 1960s and the Cultural Revolution that occurred there. You were born after that. I was born before that. And I can see an America that is as different as black and white uh, as we are, are here today. You know, I was thinking, uh, if you looked at American society today, what would you consider to be one of the strongest symbols of American uh, depravity? And I could think of many, but one that immediately came to my mind was the fact that the current President of the United States, President Obama, ever since he was elected, every June has issued a proclamation celebrating sexual uh, perversion, saying that this will be the month to celebrate lesbianism, homosexuality, bisexual, and transgenders. And uh, it's just mind-boggling to think that a president would issue such a proclamation every year, every June. In fact, this last time he did it, I wrote and said, why are you discriminating? Why don't you include uh, adulterers and fornicators and pedophiles and prostitutes? I mean, if we're going to celebrate sexual perversion, let's celebrate all of it. But that, that's just unbelievable. And what you have to keep in mind is that presidents are politicians, especially in their first term. <laughs> and they are terrified. They are petrified of offending the voting public. That's right. The only way he could do that, which goes with his general instincts, no doubt. But the reason, but normally he would have kept that to himself. He would not have made a public issue. The reason he can do that is because he's confident that the general public accepts that believes that and has no problem with it. Uh, it reminds me of a, of a TV show where I saw an actor who was going on and on about his homosexuality. And at one point he was talking about how America now accepts homosexuality and the crowd just applauded. And I looked around. I couldn't see anybody who was not applauding. Everybody was. Now, they were not all homosexuals, but they were all going along with the idea. I just got through writing an article about the difference in the America I grew up with and the America that exists today. And one thing that came to mind was the difference in television in the 1950s when television first became uh, uh, you know, available to people right. and television today. Mm-hmm. And the thing that immediately came to mind was the family that was emphasized in the 50s, the Nelsons. Yes. And the family that's emphasized today, the Osbournes. I mean, <laughs> how different can you get? Yeah. <laughs> Well, folks, that's our program for this week. I hope you will be back with us next week when I will present the second half of my prophetic manifesto. Until next week, the Lord willing, this is Dave Reagan speaking for both myself and Nathan Jones saying, look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. If you are interested in hearing all of Dr. David Reagan's hard-hitting statements concerning the biblical principles regarding the fate of the United States and the soon return of Jesus Christ, you'll want to get a DVD copy of The Prophetic Manifesto, Parts 1 and 2, which includes the free booklet, The Prophetic Manifesto. 
The purpose of Dr. Reagan's message is to share the sobering truths based on the prophecies God gave thousands of years ago, revealing how God deals justly with the nations. Dr. Reagan shares from his heart in four parts, the death of America, the end of the age, our hope, and a series of pleas. In these chapters, you will learn many facts and figures that will help you understand where we are now as a nation and where, tragically, we are heading. You can receive both programs for a donation of $20 or more. That includes the cost of shipping. And you'll get the booklet for free. Just call the number you see on the screen Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central Time, or order online at lamblion.com. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus. 